calculated it up before I came here, and I, I think it'll be this September. It's going to be 27 years since I first walked on the land. There's so many incredible memories, the relationships that I could have never seen that I was stepping into at the time have unfolded in ways that I, I could have never seen possible, but how can I keep from singing his praise? I thought about a line <clears throat> in a song that my wife and brother Josiah will sometimes sing. It's entitled, More Than Wonderful, and it says, I've tried him and I found his promises are true. He's everything he said he would be, and so much more. He's more than amazing, more than wonderful, more than marvelous, more than miraculous, could ever be. And I'll tell you, that is something that I know I can testify from my heart. I could have never seen. It went beyond my highest hopes and my fondest dreams. I want to share with you a couple of scriptures that I feel like I'd like to frame some of the things that I, I'll share here today. They're very familiar to us, but I still nonetheless felt them. The first one is in Psalms 139, where the psalmist says, and I think we can all relate to these, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. In Acts 17, Paul says, he's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling so that they should seek the Lord in the hopes that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And then in Ephesians 2 and 10, Paul says that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I hope you see a theme through that, that God has a design. I probably shouldn't be surprised that Brother Gabe sang the song that he did. God of mercy, sweet love of mine, I've surrendered to your design. But I'll tell you, that was the song I was singing all the time, coming, getting ready to come up here. Amen. So if God has a plan and a purpose, things that he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in him, he precedes that by saying something. Everybody remembers what he says to begin with? We are his workmanship. And that is something I hope that I can repeat through my testimony, that to enter into the works that God has, the purpose and the design that God has for our lives, we've got to be okay with being God's workmanship. The word that Paul uses there for workmanship, do you know what it is? The Greek word is poema, which is where we get our English word poem. And I'm not saying that that's the only thing that Paul was meaning by that, but I'll tell you, every time I read it and I think about it, I think about how God has a story, God has a plan, God has a design for each one of us. And there's something that we've got to be willing to do to discover God's purpose and plan, and that is just to lay down the pen and to not try to write our own story but to let God write that story for us. We've got to be okay that when we write a sentence and the Lord comes along and he puts a big red pen into it and says, no, that's not what this should say. We've got to be willing to say, amen, God, you're the one. I'm just entering into the works that you've prepared beforehand. I want to discover this. And that's what I hope that I can convey through some of my story. So I guess I'd sum this part up to say, are we willing to discover God's plan for our life? That means that along the way, if we're going to discover something, that means God has plans and purposes, 
And things come along that cause us to cover up those things that God would do. And to discover those things, again, we've got to pull those things back off and allow God to expose his purpose for the things that we've gone through in our lives. Are we willing to grope for him until we find him? And again, as I said, are we willing to be his workmanship? Are we willing to surrender to his design? I want to share just parts of my testimony, give you an idea of where I came from, and then just share with you some experiences that I feel like shaped me and also pivot points in my life where I knew that this was a time in my life where God had ordained this. There was something that if I had missed this in my life, I don't know if I'd be here today. Many of you know that I was, uh, I was born and raised up in Canada, in, in Montreal. That's a, a big city in the eastern part of Canada. It's a, uh, it's a big city, about probably metropolitan, about four million people today. Very multicultural city. We've got people from all over the world that I grew up with when I was born and raised for the first part of my life. I lived right really in the inner city in the same borough that my dad grew up in and that my grandparents settled in. Wasn't the worst neighborhood, but there were certainly better neighborhoods as well. We had a lot of crime that you'd see happening throughout the area. I would say the overall thing that I remember from living in that neighborhood was that there really was not a lot of trust that you had between anybody. You always were watching your back wherever you went. We lived just a few doors down for a time from the kind of a halfway house for the Douglas Mental Hospital. Lots of interesting characters that lived there. There were people who were part of the Hells Angels that lived above us that would uh, rob people's houses and then move on. It was, it was quite the, the, the cultural conflict that were there. There was people that you came into relationship with, but just like in any big city, there was a lot of animosity between people who spoke French and people who spoke English. I'm sad to say that, but in the province that I grew up in, there was a lot of tension. There were many immigrants that came in from all over the world that settled in there, and there was a lot of conflict that you could feel between all of those as well. And that, that was kind of the, the environment that I, I grew up in around me, and yet I can tell you today that I was also born to parents that absolutely loved God that absolutely believed that God did have a plan, a purpose, and a design, that absolutely believed that God's word was his word. And I tell you, if I had not had parents that had felt that in their lives, I, I can tell you right now, that's the biggest pivot point. If they had not stayed faithful to the things that they felt, I wouldn't be here today. At the same time, and I've, I've talked with my parents extensively about this, I know that they don't have a problem with anything that I'm sharing here, but I think that they would tell you, looking back on that time, and I know I do too, that despite all of those good things, we were surrounded by a culture that was absolutely not conducive to the type of fruit that they wanted to see in their children's lives, including mine. In other words, the culture that we were in, and I hope to describe a little bit of what I experienced there, but the culture that we were in, there was every type of temptation, every type of distraction that was surrounding me at every single point. And so any time that something of the, the Word of God would want to come in, something that would tell you God wants us to cooperate, and on a simple level when you're a child, you know, he doesn't want competition. You step right out into a culture that prizes competition, that prizes striving, and it's very difficult, and it sends, uh, it sends a, a very mixed message. And I can tell you that for me in my life, um, 
that brought a lot of confusion. And what that means is a force fusing of two different perspectives. One, it's the Word of God. And then you go out there and you say, how does this fit? And of course, at that time in my life, I had not surrendered my life to God. And so it brought a lot of confusion. Brother Blair has used an example before, and I think it's very good. The culture that you're planted in has a whole lot to do with the type of fruit that you're going to produce. And so if you're wanting to produce fruit that's godly fruit, you've got to go find the right soil in which you can fall into the ground and die. And as he said before, if you want to grow bananas, Alaska is probably not the best place to try to do that. And if you want to bring forth good fruit, it was very difficult within that context, and we can testify. And if you have any doubts, you can, I won't go into more detail, but I'd be glad to talk to you about it. So I grew up in that neighborhood surrounded by just anything that you do within the city. And I could go into that, but I was just down at the playgrounds, whether it was playing basketball or wall ball or playing street hockey or, or doing things in the, in the wintertime. My life was surrounded by all these things that were happening in the culture around me. Um, and yet, I know that my mom, she'd get me these books, and when I was very young, I would read these historical accounts of the way life was 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And I know that I would feel very impacted by seeing how people shared their lives together. The level of cooperation, whether that was in settling a piece of land and farming it, or whether that was building houses, I would read these accounts and I would find myself saying, I'd feel the contrast between it and I would feel these deep longings that I feel like now when I look back, they were really from God. But I used to, I, I remember being very young and stepping outside after having been immersed in these books and I'd stand out around and I'd look at all the buildings surrounding me and I'd kind of wish that I could flip a switch and just go back 150 years ago and what would it look like and how would it feel? And you know, occasionally we'd go to these big parks that were in Montreal that have a lot of forest and I would just, I would come alive. Something in me would feel the presence of God. Something in me would begin to connect to something bigger than just whatever was happening around me at the time. I want to come back to this because I feel like that's not something peripheral. I know that when I, when I read those things, there were things that impacted me that rooted deep down inside of me that whether I could have articulated it at the time, it longed for something real. It longed for real relationships. It longed for cooperation and brotherhood and it longed for a connection with God that somehow I felt was also going to be facilitated by a life that was lived on the land. Seriously, I, don't, I remember when we moved a little bit out of the city, it was the first time that I, even though maybe I had been taught about weather patterns, it was the first time I ever saw clouds rolling in and forming to, to, to create you know, a thunderstorm. There's something about living in the city, those lights are so bright that you look up, you're not going to see the stars. And I could feel somehow that getting away from that would somehow allow me to, to look up and see the stars and perhaps hear the voice of God telling me his will for my life. You know, growing up in that culture, I have situations that I want to share that were just, they were experiences that happened to me that I feel like shaped me, and some of these probably at first in the negative. You know, you grow up and when you're a, a child, you don't have a lot of consciousness of yourself. You just, you kind of are a child, you, you wear the clothes that your parents give you, you're moving along and life is, life is great, you know? And I distinctly remember though, 
being surrounded by a culture that was very influenced by fashion. It was very influenced by what was cool. You saw the teenagers walking by when you were younger. And I really truly remember the first time that I was sitting on our front porch. I remember the address, 3435 DeCary Boulevard. <laughs> it was a very busy street. And I remember looking across the street at the bus stop, seeing all the, the teenagers that were waiting to get on the bus for, to, to head to school. And it was the first time that something came into awareness with me. It was like, you know, you look down and you look at your shoes, you look up and you look at what they're wearing, and it's not the same. And you look down again and you, you look at your, your pants and all, all the way up, and in that moment, it's like something tells you inside, I am not cool. <laughs> and yet, where did that come from? I mean, who told me that? And yet there was this feeling of, I am really not cool, and I need, I need to change. And I remember even things like that, I'm still not cool, but, I'm, uh, <laughs> but, but, but I, I really do remember that was that time of saying, oh man. And, and from that time on, I remember that pressure of saying, I need these shoes, I need, I need these pants, and boy how that changed. I needed pants that were pinned up and really tight through certain periods of my life, and then I needed pants that were really big and baggy <laughs> later points in life, and, and it was completely following the dictates of what was going on in, in the fashion and the, and the peer pressure around me. But that experience, I remember thinking those things, and it affected my life. Suddenly, I was not at peace in being who I was. Suddenly, I wasn't thinking about uh, a life on the land in which you know, you were more worried about the content of your character than whether you were showing up in the right clothes or, or even more the right brand of clothing. But all of a sudden, this was getting covered over. And instead, there were things in me that were really pulling and, and wanting to fit in. And I, I did everything I could to, to, to fit in in that way. You know, the, the culture that was around me, I have a very clear memory of, of being on my front porch. And uh, it was... It was a cold morning. All I remember, everybody would line up, and sometimes the bus couldn't even fit everybody, and they'd have to wait for the next bus. But everybody's bundled up. And I remember this man standing there who was probably in college. He was wearing a McGill University jacket. And all of a sudden, I saw these two guys come up from out of this alley. And this was at the height of kind of a lot of guys would have these big mohawks. And, you know, and these guys came out, and all of a sudden, they started chanting things that are unrepeatable. And they, it was like two coyotes that fixed their eyes on some prey. And out of 50 people that were lined up, these guys started, I mean, they were gleeful as, as they came towards this guy. And he realized that they were coming for him. And he turned and he tried to run and they ran after him one way. And as I watched this, I, I, this fear began to rise up in my heart. He ran the other way and they laughed and chased him and every person stood at that bus stop in a row looking ahead. You could just see the steam coming out of there from underneath their scarves and they just kept their eyes. This was in the days before cell phones or anything like that. And he tried running one way and finally he ran down what he thought was an escape route and I know it was just a parking garage. And you could hear the sounds of what they did to that man. And when he came up, barely walking, covered in blood. These two guys came up laughing with his backpack and they actually got on the bus that was arriving with everybody else and off they went. And I want to tell you, as, as uncomfortable a story as it was, it deeply unsettled me and only underscored in my life that you don't trust anybody fully.
Nobody else is going to stand up and do anything to try to help you. That man wandered over to a, some stairwell to an apartment building, fell down there, and every single person walked and got onto that bus and didn't look. I never forgot that. I remember it wasn't too long after that that when you grow up in the neighborhood like, like I did, there were, uh, certainly I was never a part of a gang by any means. I do not look like a, a, a gangster, do I? Um, and I didn't, I wasn't back then. But I can tell you that I was very aware of those kinds of things that were going on and those kinds of relationships. And I, I remember when I would have been as young as, I believe I was around 11 years old, and I know you may think that, no, seriously, I was a slave to what I looked like already at 11 or 12 years old. But I remember being with friends at a park, and I, I don't know how I did it, but somehow I had offended uh, a guy who would have been probably 17, and he was not a, not a nice guy. And he would threaten me all the time, and I would avoid him, and I still remember the time that I turned around and it was like there was no escaping this. And, you know, all my so-called friends, every one of them took off. And I remember him and his friends. I mean, I, I was probably about 11 and he would have been about 17. And uh, I had to pick myself up off the, off the pavement. And I thought about that guy in the, the McGill University student. And I remember making my way back to and, you know, my dad was there, and I still remember my dad patching me up and, and ministering to me a message that I needed to learn to forgive. But I can tell you that at that time, I knew that was the truth. But I, everywhere I went, I know that I allowed something to come up inside of me that said, I'm never going to allow that to happen again. I'll never be the toughest. I'll never be the strongest. I was under no illusions of that. But somehow... I can't allow myself to get hurt like this again. Whatever it takes, I'm going to watch out for myself. And I know that those things began to affect the way I related. It affected how I looked at other people. It affected everything in my life. I remember another experience along those lines. I just had one more experience along those lines. But I, I remember, you know, back then, what did you do? Well, you, you played sports, and, and I, was, I remember I was playing in a summer league. I was playing soccer around that same time, and I was just, I was playing. I was never the, I was never the star or anything like that, and I'm coming back on, and uh, I get the ball, and all of a sudden, it's me, and I've got this sort of, I'll, and I am, it's me, it's a breakaway, okay? And I'm dribbling along, and I'm so focused on dribbling the ball, and oh, this is my chance, you know? And as I'm coming along, the goaltender comes running out to kind of challenge me, and I was, I was not a big guy or anything like that, but I just wasn't watching. And you know, sometimes you connect with somebody, and it's like, ooh. Well, I connected with him, and he goes flying right onto his back. And as soon as I hit him, I felt something come up inside of me, and I just, it's like I, I was about as far away from the, an open net as, you know, Maybe where Brother Wes is right there. And I'm telling you, I stopped in that moment. I said, are you, are you okay? And as I start to bend down, that goaltender, he opened his eyes and he reached out with his foot and he kicked that ball. And as soon as he did, the referee blew the whistle. And if you understand sports enough, that ref had not blown the whistle yet. Why? Because he knew that it wasn't my fault and he was giving me a chance to just put the ball in the net. Is that clear? 
but I didn't get it because I was worried that I'd hurt this guy. What do you think happened? All my teammates said, no, Nathan, you made the right call. That was good. And you, you, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> my coach came along and said, Nathan, that was good. You know, there's, there's a higher obligation. I mean, every one of them surrounded me and were like, you, what did you do? I mean, I, I got off on the sideline. My coach was like, what are you thinking? And that was another one of those experiences where the culture around me said, this is teaching you cooperation. This is teaching you how to work with other people. It's teaching you good ethics. But I can tell you that, at least from my experience, I know that underlying that was something that said, hey, that's all great and good with your team, but we're in this to win, don't forget. And we win no matter what. And that also, I know that there was something in me, that little bit of vulnerability that I felt, I felt like that had to get covered over with something else at that time in my life due to that experience. And combined with that other thing, I think that it actually made me someone who, despite what I put forth on the outside of confidence, of I'm like this, or this is never gonna happen like that, at the root of it all, I was still very much motivated by fear. Why? Because I did not want that to happen to me again. You know, I wanna say that I feel like though we were in a culture in which every time the seed of the word of God would try to come, the birds would come along and pluck it out of the way, I'm still very thankful, and I want to say it again, how thankful I am for my dad. My parents made a decision very early on in my life that radically affected my life. My dad went into a laundromat one time. He saw a man who was on the Phil Donahue talk show, and this man was talking about homeschooling. My dad looked at it. He watched it, this is my summary, he could tell it probably better. He looked at it and he said, that guy has gotta be some sort of Christian. I feel something, I do not understand this, but I feel in my heart that this is the way. That somehow parents, they've got a responsibility to educate their children and train them up in the teaching and the admonition of the Lord. And my dad didn't know anything and he came home, and let me give you background, my dad has always said, he was a hippie, he had dropped out of school and had a terrible experience in school. My mom had had a great experience in school, right? She had grown up and had a wonderful experience and so in comes my dad and says, Teresa, guess what, what? I heard from God today. I heard this man, I know he's a Christian and guess what we're gonna do? We're pulling Nathan out of school and we're gonna homeschool him. And my mom went, amen, that's wonderful, sounds great. <laughs> amen. You know, I wanna say this, even about my mom. I know that I look back and even though she would testify that that completely racked her brain, rocked her world, went against anything of any assumption that she had for her life. My mom, first and foremost, I really do feel like she didn't just say, well, I'm, I'm gonna try this. All right, we'll give it a try. Somehow she found a place of trust and submission, really saying, I feel like God has put us together. She told this to my dad in action. And I feel that you're on a mission, and if you've heard from God, I'm in this 100%, and we are gonna discover down the road what God has for us, and we're gonna take this step. And I look back now and I say, I hardly had a homeschooled friend. We homeschooled in the midst of a big city. It was looked on with a lot of scorn even back then. And I thank God that in, in a way they pioneered through those first times. 
As I grew older as a teenager, I put all kinds of pressure on them because I wanted to be at school with, with all of my friends that I saw after school. And I can tell you to this day that I'm so thankful that they stuck to their guns, I guess, and they stuck to their convictions. I tell you, if they had not done that, I, I don't believe that I'd be here today. All these struggles, I mean, I, I was raised at a time where you'd have all these crews of guys that would get together and we would break dance. And if you've never heard about it, God bless you. <laughs> so the coolest thing was to get you and your buddies and get dressed up, get your piece of cardboard, definitely get a large boom box with lots of like D batteries or C or whatever the bigger one, you know, get your cassette tape, carry it like this, walk down to the corner and, you know, and then we'd have all these battles. I was never very good in my personal opinion, um, you know, or anything like that. But it was something that was affecting everything that we did. And to give you an example, I can remember this crew from New York, this breakdancing crew was coming up from New York and it was like, hey, they're going to be over at this place and they're offering, you know, classes and, you know, some chance to kind of interact. And I was like, dad, I'm going. My dad was like, no, you're not. <laughs> and and I, I, remember, I remember telling him, dad, I've got to go. I mean, this is, yeah. and my dad saying, look, this is a fad and you can forget it, you know? And I remember saying, dad, dad, it's, I mean, please. And he would say, look, you come to me and two or three years, and if you're still interested, well, consider something like this, okay? <laughs> you, know what, you know what my reaction was? I said, Dad, breakdancing will never die. <laughs> Guess how I felt in three years. Do you think I wanted to go? <laughs> I was interested in something else by that point, but at that time, I still remember saying, breakdancing will never die. I think my dad kept a straight face, but... Um, <laughs> I have a hard time, I, I get embarrassed just thinking about it. <laughs> I remember so many times like that where I know that I'm grateful for a dad that, that held the line. Nonetheless, I feel like our life was increasingly influenced by the movies that we watched. We didn't see a lot of distinction. We wanted to live for God, but we went out into a culture that said, go to this movie as long as it's not too bad, listen to this music as long as it's not too, too bad. And I don't think that we really saw at that time the conflict that we were living in and the influence that that was having on my life. And I feel like all those things increasingly shaped me, but I, I don't believe that at that time that we really saw an alternative at that point. We moved a little bit out of that neighborhood. It was really not the best neighborhood. And when I got a little bit older, we moved out. And when we did, we grew a garden. And my mom planted a garden. We had enough of a backyard. Our yard in the place that we lived in, if you could even call it a yard, was probably about four feet to the sidewalk from our, our steps, and our backyard was no further than from me to my son Levi, and you know, 10 feet wide, it was just gravel, fire escapes and everything else. Suddenly we moved to a suburban backyard and we planted a garden. And I'll tell you, I felt little influences during that time that would begin to try to revive some of the things that I would feel when I was younger. I liked it, I didn't want to admit it, but I, I kind of liked it. Nonetheless, I made a lot of new friends in that place, and I would say that I don't have a lot of good to say about that part of my, my life. I, I would say that my life by that point had grown to a place of extreme self-centeredness. I was focused on what I wanted to do. I got through with whatever level of obligation that I had given to me, and I was out. I wanted to be with friends on the weekend. 
I, I don't think that at that time we saw, but I'd be spending the night various places, and it was basically spending as much time as I could at the local basketball court or the arcade, uh, shooting pool, going to the movies. There was an incredible pressure to conform. And yet, during all of this time, I know that I still had times where these things would come through. I remember being 15 years old, didn't have a driver's license, and, and I remember being with a group of friends, and we all started talking one time about how, as soon as we turn 18, what are we going to do? And I remember at that time, all of us were talking about things, and I remember with a, a friend, we had decided, yeah, well, we're getting motorcycles, and we're going to travel all over, and we're going to do this. And we just had this long talk, and I, I actually kind of grew relaxed with the group of people that I was with. And then all of a sudden, I remember this little vulnerability came over me, and I didn't see it at the time, and I said, so, like, okay, so what do we do like, after we're done kind of seeing it all? And everybody was really quiet, and I remember saying, you know, like, after we're done, like, what, what if we went through a place that we found that was, like, a really beautiful place? Like, you know, say we went out to Montana, and we found, like, a big piece of property or something. Wouldn't that be amazing? Like, say we bought it, and we could, like, we could all, like, live there, and, and, you know, like, if there were logs on the property, we could cut the logs down. We could build, help each other build homes. Like, you know, we could raise our, our, ki our kids together. And all of my friends were sitting around going, you know, just giving me this look. And then somebody was like, I don't know, Nathan. Sounds like you're getting a little ahead of yourself, aren't you? You know, wow. And, you know, I look back again and I say, I know that deep down in my heart, there were hopes and dreams that God had put there that I, I may not know, have known how to articulate, but they were there. I wanted something deeper. And yet all of these guys and gals who would have been friendly but never really been a true friend, I realized in that time, I, I cannot talk about this. And it was like another layer got shoveled on to all of those plans that, that God would have for my life. I felt like they had to be suppressed. They had to be covered over. And I had to find something else that would help me to conform and to fit in. I had two episodes that I feel like started to change the direction for my life. One of them was negative and the other one was, was positive. At that time in my life, and I won't go into a lot of detail, but I just, I started doing what a lot of teenagers out there will do. So weekends, I'd start drinking with friends and sneaking around, uh, sneaking out, going to parties. And I had an incredible pride that grew into my life. I had a dad who spoke the word of God to me, who warned me about all kinds of dangers, of drugs, of alcohol, of all of those things. And I convinced myself, I did a lot of sports and athletics, and I thought, I am gonna hold all of that. I can play around with these things. I'm absolutely not gonna go too far. I heed that warning, but I'm gonna do it my way. And the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. Paul says in Galatians, you will reap what you sow. And I began to reap what I had sown. And I remember that was increasingly happening in my life. I look back now and I see an increased level of pride in my life. And what happened to me was just simply that I'd snuck out. I was planning on being back in the wee hours of the morning at a friend's house. And, and I, I was in a terrible situation and I woke up on a chair like that with no arms, with my head hanging off the back, off the side. It was far into the morning and there was other people passed out and vomit everywhere and I woke up realizing that there is not a chance that I held one thing together. And I stumbled out past people and I ran up onto the road to try to catch a bus. 
Again, there was no cell phones. And out of a big city of maybe four million, of all the roads that my dad could have been, was not in the, near the neighborhood that I lived in, what road do you think my dad was driving down then? And um, I looked up and I saw my dad driving down the road and uh, he just pulled up and he just, he looked at me and I could see he, was, he felt relieved that he'd found me, but he said, just get in. And I think he could tell by the way I was, I think he could tell what had been going on. I can tell you that I began to have something rolling over in my heart that said, am I really gonna be able to hold some of these things together? What had happened almost coinciding with that was I swam competitively at that time and the, the club that I was swimming with had a guy there, you can look him up if you don't believe me, but his, his name is Victor Davis. He was a Canadian Olympic swimmer. He swam at the 1984 Olympics, won all kinds of gold medals. I'm not sure if he held world records or not, but he was training that summer with the club that I was in, and he was a big hero of all of ours. This guy had it together, just signed a big uh, endorsement contract with Speedo. He was good looking, he was super athletic, and he had the world by the tail. And uh, right around that time, he had gone out drinking in, in St. Anne's, a borough that we lived near, and uh, came out, and he, he was a pretty argumentative kind of guy and pretty cocky, and he got into an argument with somebody, and the other person got in their car, and he sat there in front of them yelling at them, and the person was yelling at them, and he had a bottle of orange juice in his hand, and all the person said that they tried to do was to drive forward to scare him a little bit, and he threw the bottle of orange juice, which shattered the windshield, and somehow robbed this man of depth perception and he just hit him hard enough that he fell back, he hit his head. And that was the end of Victor Davis's life. And that happened right around the time that this experience happened to me. And I remember thinking about that and I was thinking, this guy who looked like he'd had it together, how quickly it came to an end. And look at what just happened in my life. And it really put something in me that got my attention at that point that said, sin will take you further than you'll want to go, as we sing a song here sometimes. Slowly but wholly taking control. And I remember at that point in my life, I had a real reckoning as far as what I was going to do. I remember my dad went to a kind of a Christian conference at that time with, with a man named John Wimber. And I told my dad at the time, that's great. You guys go. That'll be wonderful. I'll just stay here at the house. And my dad basically said, well, you're either going to come with me or you're going to find another place to live. So guess what I did? Okay, well, I guess I'll go. I will say that was the first time that I felt a release. I remember raising my hands for the first time a little bit and feeling the presence of God and feeling something in my heart that said, I, I need to try to submit here to something that's beyond me. Then I'll tell you one other situation, and this was a positive experience. So here I am, I'm 17, somewhere in that age range, and I went down to visit my grandparents who lived in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, my mom is American, my dad is Canadian. So I was down there visiting them, and even then I spent my time at the mall or you know, at the local YMCA or something like that. My grandparents came down at the time and they said, well, we've got a surprise for you. And I said, oh, great, what are we doing? I was with my sister and they said, we're going camping. Now you would think that that should really excite me, but at the time and the place I was at in my life, I went, really? Oh, uh, that sounds terrible. And they loaded up their motorhome and I reluctantly loaded up to, you know how they have those beds that are over the cab? 
And I climbed up there determined that I was not going to have a good time, determined that this was, this was not going to be good, and I climbed up there and fell asleep. And if you leave Memphis and you start heading out west toward the Ozarks, you know that after you get out of that Mississippi Delta and you start climbing into the mountains where are people from Arkansas who can testify that it starts getting very pretty. And I remember waking up and opening those curtains and again, it was one of those things that came out and I said, oh, it's beautiful up here. Oh. <laughs> it's all right. Yeah, it's fine. Great. All right, we'll have a good time, you know. And, uh, but I couldn't and I had these moments where as we went, I knew that I was feeling the presence of God beginning to move on me in that way. And I remember woke up really early one morning and I, I just, I saw this trail and I just, I, I hiked up that trail and I just went far. And I hope I haven't romanticized it at all, but I remember I got up to this place and I looked way down and I saw this little valley and I see a cabin down there and I see a garden beside it. And all I can tell you is that I know that I felt the presence of God wash over me. And it was like I had this thought come up of when I was a kid reading those stories. I looked down and it was like, remember when that's, that's everything you ever wanted? I was so confused. I didn't know where, where I was. I didn't know who I was. And yet something in that, I felt something of the presence of God. And I felt like, God, I, I want to continue to feel this presence. And I don't know how to do this. But I could not shake it. And I remember after this, I, I really tried to seek God. I remember making a decision to go to a, a youth group. I would say that while I'm grateful for some that were involved in my life that I think tried to help, I think I found something else. I feel like the majority of the focus of what I experienced were people that were trying to show me how much like the world I could be and, and yet still be a Christian, if that's it. I would say that my overall experience, I would not classify that as a positive experience in my life. Lots of activities, lots of things, but I can just tell you that when youth group was finished at 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night on Friday night, I walked right back out into a culture that was not nearly conducive to living for God, and I think anything that, that God would have wanted to do in my life during that time really got undone in the few hours that I would spend after that. It was a time of conflict where I wanted to feel something and I would walk out and I would say, uh, God, why can I not maintain anything that I may have felt? You know, I really did begin to question a lot of things at that time in my life that all I can say is somehow between God moving on my life, the word of God that I do know had been held up as the word of God that somehow began to provide certain coordinates for my life, I look back and I say, how, how, how God, how, anything less than your grace that somehow came to me that caused me to start feeling dissatisfied and questioning a lot of things in my life. What was the direction I was going? I remember at the time, uh, it was very popular to wear overalls where you'd either leave one strap on or you'd leave them hanging, okay? And so at this point, it was not skinny. They were really big and, and all of this, right? And I remember I was taking the subway down to see some friends. I'm sitting on the subway trying my best to look cool. And here comes this guy who's probably in, I would have guessed he would be in his mid to late 30s or something. And I remember looking at him because he looked like he was dressed like I was. And I remember thinking inside like this, good grief, look at this guy. He needs to grow up, you know? I mean, like, what's he trying to do? And as arrogant as that sounds, which it, it is every bit of what it sounds, I actually had this feeling come over me and I thought, when do I grow up? When do I start changing? If this is somehow questionable for him, why is it okay with me? And at what point 
do I start changing? And I realized at that time that I literally was living my life not thinking an inch past the end of my nose at that point. I did what my friends did. I watched what they watched. I listened to what they listened to. I went here, I went there. All the while saying that I was my own man, making my own decisions, but I'm telling you, I was affected and uh, it, it affected me in more ways than, than, than I would have time to express it here. But that was something that left me dissatisfied, questioning, why do I do what I do? I remember taking a walk one night and looking around and thinking, I don't really have any substantive relationships with anybody on this street. In fact, I don't think that we could ask somebody to watch our house, to check our mail. There is nobody that's really taking care of anybody. And yet, I, this is such a contrast to the things that I used to read when I was a kid. Things would begin stirring in my heart. I remember reading this article on the fashion industry and getting a revelation that I'm still grateful for. I couldn't even tell you who wrote the article, but I got this revelation. I am paying all of these companies to advertise for them. I'm paying big money to Nike or, or you name it, Ocean Pacific back then, right? Or, or somebody, for anybody that lived in the 90s or whatever. And I would, I'd, I'd be paying them. And it bothered me because I realized that I was on this treadmill and I remember just making a decision, I'm ditching everything that has advertising, you know? Why? I, I couldn't even tell you at the time, but I just felt something inside of me saying, I want this out. I don't even know where this is going, but it's gone. And so I pushed that out of the way. I would find myself walking out of movie theaters, having been completely immersed and giving myself to this storyline, and there is just nothing like walking out across that pavement and knowing that you're going back to your regular life. It's not nearly as exciting. Nobody's jumping from train car to train car to rescue the person there or, you know, it, it's nothing like it. And you realize that I feel so completely unfulfilled. Amen. I remember one night I was sitting, it was in a Saturday night, and I remember in the movie, you know, somebody got killed and the entire theater started cheering, Rah! like that. And in that moment, I just, again, it, I feel like it was God, but I remember saying, how does this differ in terms of people's attitudes than like the Roman Colosseum that I've read about where they would kill Christians, you know? Like, how is this different? And I could never, I, that was something that again, something would bother me and I could not feel satisfied wherever I went. I felt like something of the conviction of God was beginning to hound me everywhere that I went. Feeling dissatisfied and yet also knowing that I did not feel any power to stop the things that I was doing. I was completely influenced by the music that was around me and I think that I was beginning to come to a place where I realized that I was addicted to the things of the world and that I felt no fulfillment in God. I can tell you that I came to the place where I started hating my fashion consciousness and yet I had no power. I was too self-conscious and too worried and too fearful about what people thought of me to ever consider really making a big change. In other words, even when I threw out all my advertising, I found other ways to dress to express a sort of counterculture. I won't go into detail on it, but it included beaded necklaces and things like that that was gonna try to show people that I was getting more rootsy, you know, or something like that and away from, uh, away from things. In other words, while God was moving in some of these things, I was desperate to try to keep a particular image because I wanted people to think a certain way of me because 
I was still trying to cover over the things that God was pulling on in my life. Amen. So I was definitely like the man that Paul describes in Romans 7. Wretched man who will deliver me from this body of death. So I began to wrestle at that point. I had a couple of friends who were older than me, and they were already in college, and all of them were telling me, what am I doing in college? Uh, I'm doing liberal arts because I have no idea what I'm doing. That's why I'm doing it. So really, you're going to school because you're, you're passionate about, no, I'm not really passionate, I don't really know, but I don't really feel like I have a choice. So I had a friend that I was close to, and I remember her telling me, Nathan, I work at Esposito's as a checkout, you know, uh, and she was in college at the time, and I remember her telling me, do you know that everybody that I work with as a cashier, they all have master's degrees, you know? <laughs> and I remember at that time, you know, that shaking me saying, and I guarantee you they didn't have a master's degree in cashiering. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so they, they probably had like some sort of medieval literature degree, right? And so... <laughs> That's one of my favorite cartoons is the guy that comes up and says, there's two people eating. He comes up and he says, hello, I'm Edgar. I'll be your master of, uh, or PhD in medieval Renaissance, lit or Renaissance literature to this evening. You know, in other words, he's a, he's a waiter, but he's got a PhD. So I really mangled that, but you get it. Yeah, so. <laughs> so I was wrestling with these things and I just, I found something inside of me saying, I feel like I'm on some sort of a treadmill that I've got to do certain things. And yet, I feel in my heart, like if I do these things, I'm not going to find the fulfillment that I want, and I, I don't even know what I want. And, you know, when we, we come to these places sometimes where we're struggling, and God will sometimes use sickness or, or situations in our lives that bring us down, and I got sicker than I'd ever been in my life. I was sick for weeks. I'm not sure what I had, but I was just down. And in that time, we got the mail in, and I get this flyer in the mail from a guy named John Jevons, who had written a book called How to Grow More Vegetables Than You Ever Thought Possible on Less Land Than You Can Imagine. That was the title. I still remember it. I still have a copy of it. It's a good book. Um, and so this guy was going all over the world teaching people how to raise food in the smallest plot possible and how to boost efficiency. And he was going to all these third world countries. And I remember reading this pamphlet and seeing the pen and ink drawings and all of a sudden, all those feelings that I'd been having when I was on that camping trip in Arkansas, all those feelings that, that I had had when I was a young child reading those stories, it was like in that moment, everything started rolling back over me, filling me. And I looked at this thing, and it was like all of a sudden, I didn't even understand what I was feeling, but it was like something made sense here that, that just seemed like... And then I turned it over, and I read that he offered apprenticeships. And it's not like I didn't know that word, but in that moment when I read apprenticeship, it was like, I mean, it's like a bomb went off or something. I got this revelation, and in that moment I thought, that's it, I'm not going to college, I'm going to pursue an apprenticeship. I hope my parents don't kill me. <laughs> and I can tell you that at that time, my parents were incredibly supportive, and I began to make real radical changes in my life at that point. I remember I took a trip. We went down to upstate New York, and I went to this place. Uh, I'd actually found a place called, they were back to the land uh, Catholics, and they ran this homesteading movement. And I remember living, camping primitively up in, the, up in the Adirondacks and learning all these basic skills. I took a job on a little organic farm that was near my place and just started trying to learn. I tried, to, I tried reading everything I could, and at that point, I just felt like I'm a slave to sin, 
And if I can get away from all of my friends, everything is going to be great. I'm going to be able to live for God, and everything is going to be wonderful. My dad had run a street ministry for many years. And I, again, I, 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 I believe my dad has shared this, and I, so I, I think I'm at liberty to share that, you know, through all of that, you hadn't seen a whole lot of success with the people that came in. They'd come in for drug rehab. They'd come in for detox. But immediately, they'd go back out into the very streets in which they'd come into the addiction and the vices of the world and they'd go right back out and they'd be right back there again. In a spiritual sense, that's really the way I felt with my life. So I remember at that point going to my parents and saying, can we sell the house? Can we buy a farm? And can we move out into the country? It's got to happen right away. And my parents said, there is not a chance that we can make any kind of move like this. They said, Nathan, if you're serious about this, then you just need to start right where you're at. Even if that just means growing a pot in the backyard, then I hope that you'll do it. And at that point, I said, great. And I tore up the backyard. We had a pool and a, a deck. I think I mean, left little footpaths for people to go through, but I just started getting out there in the garden, digging it, and literally filling it up. I remember planting a small patch of wheat and oats, not because we were going to eat them. I just never seen them growing and I just wanted to see it growing, you know? Something was beginning to come alive in me. So at this point, uh, there was still a lot of pressure, you know? I was beginning to encounter people that when I began to try to make these decisions, they would tell me, Nathan, the sky's the limit. You've got a million and one options in front of you, you know? That's great, and I'd say, absolutely, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about doing something with agriculture. Ooh, why, you can't do that. I thought you just said the sky was the limit. I thought that everything was okay, but I began to encounter people all over the place that would tell me there are certain things that you can't do. And I would feel these wars going on inside of me. And so right at that time where I was just about to head to California to go on this apprenticeship and was really trying to pull things together for that, and something had happened that I, I wanna just make clear. Years before, my dad had met a man the man that he had seen on that television screen in that laundromat. Remember me telling you about that? He met that man, and he told that man named Dr. Raymond Moore, he told him, you know, sometimes I worry about the culture that I'm raising my children in, and I worry for them. And he told him at that time, he said, you know what? I was just down with this group of Christians. At that time, they were in Colorado. And he said, you need to get a hold of them, these people, I think they've got what you're looking for. And at that point, that's my summation of it, my parents had reached out and they had ordered a coffee table book called Koinonia Country. It was about our life in Colorado. And I'll tell you, when that book came at that time, it was kind of like, with me, you kind of look through it like that and you move on. And one night, even though I really didn't have a prayer relationship with God on that deep level, I decided that I was really going to pray about my life and say, God, do you really want me to go to California? Everybody was asleep, and I still remember as I came up, at, we had a finished basement. It was like a split-level home. And as I came up, I remember looking across the carpet to the bottom of the bookshelf, and I saw Koinonia Country. And I remember in a moment, God just highlighted that. And I walked over, and I sat there for a couple of hours looking at this book and reading the things that Brother Blair shared. And I can tell you that as I read it, something began to resonate deep in my heart. Something began to pull me, and something began to grow in me that said, I wonder if these people would ever accept an apprentice to come down, and I could learn how to horse farm down there. I'd, I'd, maybe I'll even use horses. And I remember at that time, I wrote the fellowship, 
I spent, through another story, I spent the summer in, in, in Denver, Colorado. It was not a good summer at all for me, and that strengthened my resolve that I had to do something. And when I got back, I had a letter waiting in the mail, and it was from a man named Dr. Jim Truax. I don't know if Brother Jim is here tonight or not, but uh, I had written them, and I'd say, would you, would you accept it? And he said, well, I'd like to get to know you a little bit more. And we began to talk back and forth, and and I asked them if they'd accept me for a short time, and then we eventually settled on, well, why don't you come, why don't you come for two months? And, uh, you know, when I arrived 27 years ago this September, as I started telling you, I had no idea what I was in for, but I'll tell you, it was a whole lot more than horses that God had for me. Amen. A whole lot more. I had no idea what God was going to have. And um, I remember walking into my first meeting, I think I was here for a couple of weeks before I ended up going to my first meeting. And I walked in, and Brother Jim had tried to prepare me. He said, you know, we, we are, we're pretty demonstrative in our prayers and praise. And I said, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Not a problem, you know. He said, no, we really worship the Lord. You know, we're really serious about God moving in our midst. And, you know, when we pray, we're all praying because we believe God, God wants to move through his body. Absolutely. Not a I, it's not a problem, Brother Jim. It's great. I'm ready, you know. And of course, I came in, and the spirit fell, and everybody threw their hands in the air, and they were worshiping, and I was freaked out. <laughs> now, why? Was it because there was something scary? I mean, I had to know. I would sit at hockey games and things like that and scream my head off and throw my hands in the air and jump up and down. Why? I know now that I knew that I was around people I could feel. I, I can't say that I knew it. I felt it that when they raised their hands, that that was the universal sign of surrender, and that these people were serious about loving the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I'm telling you, I felt it deep inside my heart, and it scared me. And again, I'll thank God for my father at this time, but I remember calling my dad, and I said, uh, I called him up, and I said, Dad, it's been great. I've been here for two weeks. I've learned a lot, learned how to harness the horse, uh, drove him a little bit. Um, Everything's great. I think it may be good to just come on home now. And my dad was like, really? I thought you were going to be there for two months. And I was like, yep, but uh, it's all okay. And so he kind of pried a little bit. And I remember saying, Dad, I mean, when they prayed, you know, and I, I tried to express it. <laughs> and I expected my dad to say, oh, yeah, boy, that does sound strange. Yeah, great. I'll pick you up, you know, <laughs> pick you up at the airport. Instead, he gave me this answer and he said, you know, Nathan, when I first came to God as a hippie, I came straight over from Europe. He said, I remember going into these churches, and he said, that's the way all the saints of God would pray. He said, I didn't, I, he said you'd, you'd go down in the church basement, and an hour before the meeting, all of them would be down on their knees, praying, worshiping God, crying out, seeking God's presence in his face. He said, you know, for years, I have wondered, why don't people pray like that anymore? What's lost? Why don't people continue to cry out to God like that? And it troubled me deeply. And I remember my dad telling me, Nathan, I think that if you stick it out, I have some feeling in my heart like you're going to discover that these people are really brothers. You know, I wrestled with it that entire, I wrestled with it that entire week. Should I pray like this? And I remember coming to a place where I said, I've got to come. I love what I'm seeing here. And I did. I loved it. I loved the relationships. I was so impacted by the people that I met all around me. Little things had made such a huge impact. I remember meeting Brother Philip Lancaster for the first time and him telling me that he'd made a coffee table. And I remember saying, 
you made a coffee table? I was blown away. I, I didn't know anybody that worked with their hands. And little things like him saying, I said, could you show it to me? And he said, absolutely, yeah, let's go. And I remember he kind of started to open the door, and as I was walking in behind him, he turned around and he said, can you just wait a second? I may want to just check with my folks and see if it's a good time for you to come in. And I was blown away because there had never been an attitude of honor that checked on anything higher than myself. I still had not come to a place of repentance, by the way, in terms of my own attitudes towards my parents, but my whole thinking was being readjusted by seeing people who had honor and who loved God, and there was something bigger than, than me that was going on in all of this. Amen. I ask lots of questions, and I remember the final fellowship that I had with everybody before I was heading back, and I can tell you, brothers and sisters, I felt such an incredible pull on my heart. And yet, there was something in me at that point that felt like I had gleaned a lot. And I said, this is wonderful. I'm going to be able to pick and choose a little bit of those things. And I began to feel this thing inside of me that said, even though I felt like I knew where God was calling me, I'd say, yeah, I, I, but I can live for God up in Canada, can't I? And could I, if God had called me there? Yes. yes. But... I just could feel this feeling inside of me that, of God saying, yes, I know, but what am I calling you to? Remember when Peter was before Jesus and Jesus told him which way he was going to go and he turned and he looked at John and said, what about this man? And Jesus said, you follow me. That is what I was feeling in my heart at that time. But there was a pretty big struggle going on. I went back to Canada and I tried getting back to my life. I began having hopes and dreams for a farm. I tried my best, and I'm telling you, my life had been forever impacted. I walked around, and people would ask me about my experience, and I'd tell them, listen, they were great folks, um, very loving, but I think that they think I'm going to move down there. I think that's why they, they say that they love me so much, and I, I don't think I'm going <laughs> to. I think that's really it. And, you know, I would say those things, and then I'd have people that would go, yeah, yeah, you know, people can be that way, you know. They can kind of, you know, love you a lot because they think they're going to get you to do something. And then I was a man in conflict, and I would look at them, and I'd, I'd find myself alternately defending them, and I'd say, no, 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 that, no, that's not it, I'm telling you. And I would remember conversations I'd have with Brother Gary, or Brother Joel, or Brother Blair, and I can remember seeing their faces come up, even times when we worked through things, and I'd say, no, 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 they, I encountered people that were the real deal whatever I knew of the real deal, but it was real. And I remember telling people that and saying, no, these people weren't fake, no, it's not. And I'd walk away and go, what just happened? You know, I, I just, I, I tried to say one thing, I was conflicted everywhere I went. You know, I feel like where Jesus said that you can't put new wine into old wineskins, he also says that you can't take a piece from a new piece of cloth and sew it onto an old. And I'll tell you, I feel like my life at that point was trying to make a patch out of God. And brothers and sisters, God is not a patch. That's what I wanted. I wanted to take the things that I saw, even things that I didn't understand, and I, I wanted to go in and cut little pieces out and say, I really appreciate this. This definitely affected me. And sew it on to the life that I was living at that point. And I can tell you, everywhere I went, I felt like that patch would shrink and begin to peel away. Amen. I found myself so many situations during that period of time that I knew I did not belong there. I knew I was heading backwards 
to the things that I was trying to leave behind, and I was in a state of constant conflict. And I remember at that point I said, I'm going to move to a piece of property somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and that way I'll get away from all of these things. And then I had an experience where we had somebody over for dinner, and, and they looked out and they said, oh, you guys got a garden. And my dad said, Nathan, you want to go out and show it to them. And I remember taking them out there and beginning to show them the garden and explain to them what it meant to me. And I, I had another one of those encounters where something came over me and I said, I knew it. It was like if I had to articulate it would be, you know you'll never be happy on a piece of property all by yourself, raising food for yourself. I felt something when I was talking to them that somehow all of this was connecting to something bigger. And I felt deeply disturbed because I just didn't, I didn't know where, I, I did know where I was supposed to run, I just didn't want to run there. Amen. So people would say to me at this point, why didn't you just move? I mean, I do not understand why you would not just move. I already told you that I had all these little issues, or maybe I alluded to it. I had all of these little issues that I would look at that say, well, they do it like that, and I'm not sure. And I look back now, and I can say in my life, you know, not one of those little particulars that I would bring up, absolutely that was not the issue at all. It was what it meant for me, why I did the things that I did, that was what really impacted me. So remember my, like my beaded necklace, right? I, I always had worn a necklace of some time, depending on what kind of fashion it was. And there were things like that that I just kind of went, well, this is me, and I'm just not sure. Yeah, they, they don't do those kinds of things. And I look back now and I go, really? That was really the issue? No, it was not the issue. I had an image that I had worked and put up that I wanted people to relate to me through. I wanted to present myself in some way to them. And I look back now and I go, all these little things, there was a root of fear. There was a root that was there in my life. But I held up two things that I would hold up to probably the strongest at that time in my life that I said, absolutely not. One was I had a little sister that was, she was, she was my, my youngest sister, she was, her name was Evangeline. My second to youngest daughter is named after her, Evangeline. We call her Eva. And Evangeline was born with physical defects on the inside. She looked normal on the outside, but she had heart problems. She was missing a lung. And the doctors didn't think that she'd live even a day. Then they said she wouldn't live for two days. Then they said two weeks, two months. You know how that went. And, and by this point, she was six years old. She was on oxygen all the time. She had all kinds of difficulties in the way that she, she lived her life. But she was a trooper, and she, she, she plunged through everything. And I can tell you that at that point in my life, for probably a couple of years, I prayed over her, and I can tell you that no matter where I was and what I was doing, I prayed for her every single day. And I can tell you right now that I fully believed that God was going to heal her, and I prayed all the time. I said, God, heal her. God, you prepare somebody that would marry her, that would love her, despite her difficulties. I prayed it, I believed it, and when I began to feel God calling me, I just said I would not leave Evangeline. She was high maintenance. She needed a lot of help and a lot of care, and our family kind of cohered around that in a certain sense, the needs that she had. And I said, forget it, it's not going to happen. And then the second thing was, is you remember when I got beat up, and remember when I, when I had my experience on the soccer, I just said, Listen, I know these people, they trust God, and they're nonviolent. And I just, I'm not the toughest, I'm not this, but, you know. I wanted to hold some little thing for myself that could say, you, you should be able to defend this or to do this in some way. You know, protect yourself in some way. Those were the two things. Four months after coming home, 
I remember one night uh, I had such a disturbing dream in which I was trying to defend. I, by the way, on that whole subject, I went away. I got every book that I could read on it. I remember reading this one book that had three or four views on this whole subject of just war and violence, and I read the entire thing. And the closer I got to the Anabaptist view, which they had one was the Anabaptist view, and it was kind of like, I mean, every one that I read, like the first one, which was basically a Christian can do anything that they want, I think he might have had one scripture in there right? Then the, the next one, I quoted a couple of scriptures here, there, and by the time I got to the back, it was like this sinking feeling. It was loaded with scripture, and I, I just, I could just feel this feeling like, oh boy, you know? <laughs> uh, I knew God was, was dealing with me, and, and, and uh, again, I had this, I had such a disturbing dream. It's, it's hard for me to describe it. I'm not somebody that dreams a whole lot. And I had a dream that disturbed me so badly that I didn't even really think of it. I'm 19 years old. And what did I do? I got out of my bed. I walked down in the pitch dark and I walked down to my parents' room. That's embarrassing to admit. I didn't even think of what I was doing. I walked down and I could see my dad's form lying there on the bed. And I said, Dad, yes. I said, Dad, I, I, had a, I had a horrible dream. Oh, man, I died in the dream. And it was, this happened and that happened. And I thought I was going to do this and that. And uh, all my dad said, I, I didn't, couldn't see his face or anything. He said, well, it sounds like God is speaking to you about your self-reliance. That was the word of God for me. And I'm telling you, I felt like I knew what the real issue was. It wasn't a scriptural problem with this or what this. I didn't understand a lot of things, but I knew in that moment what God is really dealing with me about. It's not all these particulars. It's not this question of what if this happened or that happened. I know that deep down, I'd rather try to rely on myself than to truly trust God. I felt it. And then my sister went into the hospital. And um, I remember going down there, and she was at death's door, and she'd been there more times than I can actually remember. And um, I remember going home that night after leaving her there. I went home, and uh, we, we got home, and the call was, you got to come back right away. And we went back, and I remember it beginning to dawn on me that Evangeline wasn't going to make it through the night. And um, I got pretty upset. I, didn't, I said I didn't understand. But we had to, to reckon with the fact that this was, this was her time, and she lived a far fuller life, and that God was calling her home at that time. And um, <clears throat> I, I went home, and I faced a very big struggle in my life at that point over the next couple of days. And I did not understand, and I had questions. And um, I know there were some other people at that time in my life who made very, very different decisions in relation to what happened there. I don't understand this. How could this have happened? How could a loving God allow something like this to happen? If anyone was in the symposium, you could listen to some of the teachings that were there, some that Brother Zach gave and, and others. We know that God has given us a, an understanding of all those things, but I'm telling you, at that point, I didn't have an answer to one question that was coming to me. And I didn't know what to do. And uh, I'm ashamed to admit that I was raised in a Christian home and that I'd never read the book of Job, but I remember I made a decision and I read, I said, I'm going to read the book of Job and I'm going to read it from start to finish. And I did. 
And um, I don't remember much about all of it other than that I remember when I got to the end, I had a supernatural encounter with God in which I felt like God was confronting me with the same question that said, where were you and what do you really understand about all this? Who are you to rise up like this? What do you know? And I didn't understand it, but I made a decision in my heart. I said, God, I do not understand this, but I know I would have liked to have written this story a little bit differently. I know that you're working on me. I would have ended this differently, but I'm going to put down the pen. And I felt God really speak to me at that point. If you're willing to put down the pen, I'd like to turn the page and I'd like to begin a new chapter. And I knew it in my heart at that time that that's what God was speaking to me. Amen. So you, so you say, so then you just called the brothers down in Texas and said, so can I come on down now? Is that what happened? No. I continued to struggle. <laughs> I continued to struggle. I'd have dreams where your dad used to stand at the, at the platform back then, and he would minister, and we'd all feel so much of the Holy Ghost, but he'd, sometimes he'd hold his Bible open, he would wear half glasses. And um, we had this little Volkswagen uh, Golf back then, this little you know, five speed and I'd zip around in it and I'd have dreams where I'd be zipping along and the car would break down and I'd pull over to the side of the road in the middle of Montreal and I'd pop the hood and I'd be thinking, oh, I'm not a mechanic. What do I do here? And, you know, and I'd look up and there would be Brother Blair. I mean, the most vivid dreams. And I'd look up and he'd be looking at me, he'd have his Bible and he'd say, Nathan? And I'd say, but Brother Blair, what are you, what are you doing here? And he'd say, how are you doing? And I, oh, my car just broke down and, and uh, uh, you know, and he'd look at me and he'd say, you know, you're headed in the wrong direction. And I'd wake up from these dreams just, <sighs> and you know, they were convicting dreams, brothers and sisters, but I knew that the love of God was calling me. Okay, so how did I get here? So, you know that there are certain things that we put in God's hands for him to ordain and to work out. And one of those things is marriages. In other words, we believe that God puts his love in his heart for two people. And we believe that he is sovereign enough to speak to them, to put his love and his care, and to lead them together. And we don't talk about those things unless it's in the right way. We don't feel any need to really date to try things out because we live in community together. We know each other. Our goal is to put aside all those things. It was something that I found incredibly refreshing when I came here. There was no sense of people trying to impress each other, trying to, trying to find out who liked who and who did this and what, what was going. None of that was there. You felt like people were able to put those things aside and say, we just can get to know each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord, or those that are pressing into becoming, and we don't have to worry about that. In God's time, he's going to speak to us, and we don't have to stir up or awaken love, as it says in the Bible, before it's time. So I'm saying that for a reason, because I was very close with a brother, Brother Kurt, and uh, he's up in our Idaho community, and Brother Kurt was one of these ones that would have probably taken a long, long time to begin to feel the courage and the, the, to take the step to say, I think I'm feeling something about getting married. I had a feeling, even when I was down here with him, that he had certain feelings about those things. And, uh, and I, I just, you know, Kurt would pray about these things and whatnot. So here I am up in Canada, and I'm struggling. 
And Brother Kurt gets up in a meeting. He walks up and he sings a song. And Brother Kurt does not, he does not have a part in the music ministry or even do anything like that. And he sang a song. And the one time, I believe in the history of our fellowship, you can correct me, but I think it's right, <laughs> that Brother Blair leaned over, I believe, I wasn't there, I'm being, you know, but he, he said something to Brother Howard, and he walked up as Brother Kurt went down, and he said, you know I've never done this before or since, and I don't know, but I feel compelled to say that God just spoke to me, that God had something very special for Brother Kurt, and he was going to be getting married soon, and God was going to speak to him. And in fact, he showed me who he was going to get married to. And I, I saw this aura around them. And, you know, and at that point, there was enough trust that Brother Kurt had in his relationship with Brother Blair. You know, we were family in that sense, not, not literal, but we were the family of God. And Brother Kurt knew that God was speaking. And actually, he'll tell you his story. He already knew who he was supposed to marry. And it was who Brother Blair had seen, even though they hadn't talked. No, he didn't say it was so-and-so. He just said, I saw... So, you know, Brother Blair has shared before that, I believe, to a question that you asked one time years ago when you were a young man, you asked him, Dad, what was it like to be you back then on East 14th Street? What did you all have then that you feel like we might miss today? And this is a partial answer. He ministered this in, I think, 2003, but he said, you know, you all are benefiting from the life that we have lived and God has led us in for so many years. He said, but the one thing that I know we had back then, we had a zeal to do God's will. And when God spoke it to us, we didn't overcomplicate it. We were able to respond to him and to do his will. And therefore, when God spoke and said, go up on the street and have a meeting up there, he said, sometimes we made mistakes, but he said, when God told us to do that, we had to trust him that he was the one that saw ahead, and he knew that there was going to be somebody waiting in the shadows across the street listening to that, and a few months later, we're going to become part of the church. Amen. And somehow that same zeal to do God's will threw out a lifeline to me when I felt like I was drifting further and further, and I, I worry about what would have happened in my life at that point. So I get a call, and it's Brother Kurt. Nathan, I'm engaged. I was thrilled. I was like, Kurt, this is wonderful. It's great. I wanted to invite you to my wedding. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Kurt, I, I appreciate that invite. I have had the stomach bug um, <laughs> the, the last few days, and I'm not going to be able to make it. And then there's this long pause. Are, are you serious? I'm, I'm, I'm not getting married for a couple of months, Nathan. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, uh, uh, I wrestled with it. So... Brother Kurt called back again, and he said, look, I've got air miles. I mean, I've got a ticket for you. Oh, great. There goes another excuse. You know, I, didn't, I don't think I have the money for the flight, you know, and all of these things. And I was in turmoil. I was sick. I was unhappy. And my parents pulled me aside one day. I'm not sure at that point that any of us really saw where God was really going to be taking me on that next step. We'd just come through what the world would call a tragedy, the loss of a child. Um, we were all kind of reeling from that. Uh, there, there was a lot that was going on at that time. There was a lot of pressure. But they pulled me aside and they said, look at you. You're miserable. You're completely unhappy. All you do is, you know, you go out, you come home, you're no happier. You're miserable. What's your problem? You know, why don't you go down? Go down for the wedding. They're your friends. They love you. Why would you not go? And I couldn't tell them why, but I was just really struggling. 
And I remember the day that something came over me and I went out to our garage all by myself and I said, you know what? I don't know what to do, but I, I do remember that when I used to pray like they prayed and, and yield myself, I, I remember I would feel the presence of God. And I went out there and I threw my hands in the air and I started praying just like everybody that I'd seen in the fellowship do. And I'm telling you, the presence of God came down and I felt this release at that time that I knew, okay, I'm gonna go. And as soon as I called Brother Kurt and I got everything in order, I can tell you that I started to feel something come alive. I remember I arrived down here, got in on a Friday, went straight to a Friday night meeting, and I remember this feeling inside of me as I was worshiping the Lord, and it was like I felt this, this compulsion inside of me that said, aren't you tired of holding all this in and holding all this back? Why don't you just worship God? And as silly as it may have looked, I remember I threw my hands in the air, and it was like I just started jumping up and down up in place. As silly as you may think that seemed, it was like something in me was just shedding off all these layers. It was like all these things that had piled over in my life due to my attitude, my decisions. It was like I was shaking those things off and blowing them off and letting the Lord begin to revive something inside of me. I had such an incredible time. I connected with people on levels that I knew that these were real brothers. These were friends. These were people that loved me, brothers and sisters. And, um, you know... I remember right before I left, it would have been a day or so before I left, and I decided to take a walk, and I walked down the river road. And how many people here remember Brother Armando Diaz? Brother Armando was a special brother, and when God called him home, we knew it was his time, but we miss him. And I'm telling you, he was a faithful, patient, wonderful man. He taught me how to farm with horses, and um, I was walking down the road all by myself, and I saw Brother Armando, and we talked for a little while, and he was, he was cultivating. <clears throat> So uh, we talked for a while, and I remember telling him, I said, uh, you think I could take the, take the horses out for a round? And um, he was like, oh, I don't want you to work while you're down here. You're supposed to have a good time. And I said, no, this would mean something to me. And he said, okay, I'll let you go. And you know, sometimes you try so hard to keep it all together, and you're just, you're not casting your cares upon him. And there was still a little bit of that. And, you know, sometimes you'll start driving or, you know, something like that. You just, all of a sudden, you let things go. And I remember getting behind that team of horses, and it was like I just got so focused on what I was doing that I just, I began to feel the presence of the Lord again. And I got right underneath the bluff. There were no houses along that bluff then. And it was like as I turned around, that same presence that hit me in Arkansas, that same presence that would come over me when I was a child, washed all over me again. And it was like I could hear a voice inside saying, you know the farm that you've always wanted, and it's right here. You know the friends that you've longed for, that you know you can really be vulnerable about your hopes and dreams. You know that they're right here. You know you, you stopped dating and you left all that behind. You know, that, you know that if you want to get married and find somebody that really loves God, they're going to be right here for you. Everything. And I, I just broke down weeping at that time. I felt so shallow. I felt like a leaf on a breeze. I felt like I had, you know, every time I'd try, I'd be like a sheet of paper. You know, you try to stand it up and it would just flop over. And spiritually, that's kind of the way I felt. Amen. I knew I needed to make a decision at that point. And I remember getting down and handing the drive lines to, I handed them to, to Brother Armando. And as I was walking down, Brother Gary lived lived uh, on the lower land at that time. He was working in his garden, and I don't think he saw me at his vegetables, and he was, you know, he had been picking vegetables, and his, I just followed him. I didn't know what I was doing. 
I followed him, his door shut. I was about 10 feet behind him. I walked up and knocked on the door. He opened up the door, and when he opened it, it was a little bit like, you know, hi, you know, can I help you? How are you? You know? And I didn't know, I just, I felt like I bumbled. I just said, I just had an encounter with God. I, I don't, I just, I feel like I hurt. I just, I, you know. And I remember at that time, Brother Gary looked at me, and it's like he cut through, and he said, do you need to go home? How, how, do you want to stay for a while and sort out some of the feelings that you're feeling? And in that moment, brothers and sisters, it was like it leapt up inside of me, and I said, I, I don't, I, I can come back. And you know, I committed, I had committed to help a friend in Toronto um, uh, work a job for a couple of weeks, and I knew that I couldn't back out on that. And yet when Brother Gary said it, something came up inside of me that said, God, I hope if I go back to that context even for a week, that I won't be so fickle as to fall away again. And before I left, I wrote myself a letter. I wrote everything that I felt. I sealed it up, and I said, I'm going to carry this letter in my pocket everywhere I go. And if I am tempted to back off from what I know I feel in my heart, I'm either going to have to pull out that letter and throw it away and know I'm throwing away the truth from my life, what God has revealed to me, or I'm going to open that letter if I need it bad enough, and I'm going to read everything, and hopefully it will bring me back to my senses. Amen. I never had to open that letter up. I felt like I focused, and I said, God, you're going to lead me all the way. You know, I had people that came again that told me, you've had a tragedy in your family. Don't you move for a year. Don't you do anything. I had people coming along and offer me jobs, offer me tutoring, offer me places of, uh, in education. I'm telling you, I faced everything that would have come up. And I'm telling you, at that point, people said to me, how could you do this to your family? And while they were supportive, I know that it was not an easy thing to let me go at that time because we just lost, lost one and, you know, we didn't know what the future held. And I have a picture of my, my younger brother who may be here. Tim, where are you? And he was hugging my neck on the day that I was leaving to come down here because I knew that God had spoken to me and he told me the best way that you can help for your family is for you to obey me. If you'll obey me, that's the best way. Amen. And at that time, how could I have envisioned when I was saying goodbye at that time that my life was going to be completely transformed coming down here? And my parents were going to begin to come down with my younger brothers, and they were going to begin to see the transformation that God worked in my heart and in my life, and they were going to be provoked to jealousy, and they were going to come along after that. I know there's no guarantees. Everybody has a decision, but my point is, is that had I tried to look ahead and plot out the story for my life, I'll tell you, I don't believe it would have turned out the way it has. Thank you, Jesus. But God in his mercy helped us to take those steps. I have more that I'd like to share. Maybe God will have it at another time. There's a whole other story about how I met Regina, my wife, how God brought me to, to be married to her. There's so many other things that I could share with you about the work that God did in my heart at that time and during that period of time. But the thing that I want to close with is to tell you to revisit what I began with, is that God had a design and a plan for my life, just like he has a design and a plan for each person in this room here. God had a design, and it was all a question of whether I was willing to surrender to that design. Whether I was going to trust God for the story, or whether I was going to going to continue to rely on my own protections, my own narrative for my life of why I was the way I was. 
And believe me, I had ways that had to be worked out. Oh, I'm like this because you know what happened to me when I was younger, and so people say that I have real problems with trust like this, and I, I act like this because of that. And I could tell you stories. For now, I just want to say, there's narratives that we build up of our lives. There's, there's things that we define things as, and God comes along and says, do you want to discover my perfect will? Why don't you throw your hands in the air, surrender to my will and to my design? Thank you, Jesus. Even things that I know were explained to me at first in ways that I knew that I could not argue with scripturally, I can tell you, brothers and sisters, it didn't settle the issue in my life. It didn't until I recognized that there was an underlying problem. And I've got to tell you that I feel like I saw in my life that ultimately there was an unsubmissiveness in my life. There was a lack of trust in which I wanted to write my own story, and the question was whether I could trust him completely and surrender to his design. You know, I just want to say that in Jeremiah chapter 29, there's a passage that says, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. We know that passage, right? But you know, there's also a passage and there's a verse that goes right before that that I oftentimes don't put together, but they go together. And it says, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to prosper you, plans not to harm you, but to give you a future and to give you hope. And I am convinced, brothers and sisters, that you're never going to be able to seek God with all your heart if underlying it, there's still some sort of a fear that maybe God's design isn't your best. Amen? That somehow you look at God and you say, can I really trust this? You might have even said, I've taken this step and I've taken that step, but can I really trust this? And so you'll go out and you'll say, okay, I'll pray, I'll try it. And you, you can try all these things to seek God with all your heart, but seeking God with all your heart has got to include you are good all the time. You have what's best in mind for me. And if I can trust you with this, I know that on the other side, I'm going to understand the story a little bit better. Amen? So even if we're like Abraham, and we feel like we've obeyed, and then finally God comes, and he looks at us, and as Brother Blair has written in the literature, that in the Hebrew, he actually asks, says to Abraham, please, would you sacrifice your only son? I'm sure Abraham did not understand what God was really doing at that time, but we know that he did not go up with the fire and the wood and the stones, kind of with a, a lead rope towing a ram behind him, just in case. And when his son came and said, Dad, I see all, all, everything, but where is the, where's the sacrifice? You know that there's something that wants to rise up inside of you that says, I don't understand. I don't know. I'm just trying to. And we want to exercise our supervision and look down the road and say, well, can't I do this? And what about that? And, and the test that we learn from the father of the faithful is to say, God will provide. God sees ahead. Brothers and sisters, when I look out and I see your faces, I say, how could I live? without what God has given me here? How could I have ever lived? This is the answer of hopes and dreams that I know God put in my heart. And I know that there are people here, I know you have hopes and dreams. You have desires, you have callings that God has put there. And everything is pivoting on whether we can say, 
God, I've surrendered to your design and I'm trusting you for this. Amen. If we can learn to give ourselves in that way and we can trust God, I promise you, I feel like the story is continuing to unfold in my own life, but I can tell you, he's more than wonderful, brothers and sisters. It's been more amazing, more wonderful. God's been everything that he said he would be, and he's been so much more than that. Amen. And I'll tell you, I'm so thankful that we can surrender to God's design, to God's purpose. Amen. And who knows what stories are going to be written even tonight and in the days ahead. And we believe the greater things are still to come. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you. I just think of how gentle God's grace is. He doesn't demand it. He offers it. He invites us to it. And some of us, we would rather God demand it. We would rather him force us through it. But you cannot gain escape velocity or have transformative power as you see in Brother Nathan's life unless his love, his word, his grace resonates in your heart sufficient to set you in motion, sufficient to set the course of your life. How many of us know that we should write that letter and put it close to our heart. All the times when God spoke things, things that could open doors, things that could solve problems, things that would release grace and change and healing and transformation, but things which we refuse to walk in. And that's the danger is his voice resonates with the sheep but it bounces off the hard skulls of the goats. He won't impose himself. We can walk away from it. We can do despite to the spirit of grace. We can quench the spirit. We can resist the spirit. We can trample underfoot his mercy, his blood. But I believe that the hearts of the sheep, the hearts of the children of God, are stirred again tonight to say, I surrender to your design. If you're saying that tonight, don't let this just be a moment. You need to figuratively commit yourself to a course that is not subject to the yo-yo consistency of your erratic mind of your unpredictable emotions. You need to put yourself in a situation that gives you no out. He said, I wanted to read that letter of all that God had spoken and say, I'm untrue and I'm, I'm throwing this letter away or read it and say, okay, God, I remember what you spoke. What he's describing is the power of a commitment. And tonight, God's intent from heaven is not to warm the cockles of your heart only. God's intent is not to entertain you with an amazing narrative, with beautiful lessons only. God's intent is to provoke 
through grace those who would be moved by gentle grace to make a commitment to bind themselves to a commitment that represents his lordship in your life. You won't always feel what you're feeling right now and you shouldn't expect to. But do you feel enough to in your heart make a commitment? A turning never to turn back from. Why don't we all just bow our heads and ask ourselves, Lord, what are you asking me to commit to? Between you and I, in the secret recesses of my heart, in the quiet chambers of my mind, you know. And tonight, we both know that you have spoken. God, would you give me the grace to make this commitment? Maybe it's a commitment to turn from Maybe it's a commitment to turn toward, a commitment to trust you, to reject myself, my sin. Maybe it's all of the above. Maybe it's a commitment to pray different, to change my whole life by renewing my attitude, my mind, in accordance with your grace. But God, give us the grace to make this commitment. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Brother Nathan, for sharing. You know, while you were speaking, I thought if you hadn't made that decision, Brother Caleb wouldn't be here. And I suppose you could say if Brother Caleb wasn't here, would the New Zealand Fellowship be here? I don't think so. And if they weren't here, would the South African Fellowship be? You know, and the ramifications are endless of the decisions we make for God, for love, to make him the center, amen, and us just a part in his plan, amen. That's why repentance is removing self from the center. When self is at the center, self is God, and when self is God, you're living a miserable life because we just make terrible gods, amen. But if we put God and his love at the center and we revolve around that, that's walking in repentance. Amen. It's not about works that we can boast in. What are the sacrifices that are acceptable to God? A broken spirit and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will never despise.